Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I think we made decisions about taking the arts out of school for all the right reasons that they were the wrong decisions. You know, we thought that we could help our kids, you know, get down to business. We thought that we could you know, make them smarter. We thought that we could, you know, achieve these goals of greater workforce. But I think what we didn't know and what we forgot was that, um, you know, we are literally wired for the arts. They're how we learn. They're how we grow. They're how we heal. Taking the arts out of schools was exactly the wrong decision. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Susan, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. It is my pleasure to have you here. So you have this amazing new book out called Your Brain on Art, which, as I mentioned before we hit record, uh, immediately went into my top 10 uh, book list for the year because it was one of my absolute favorite books. And I've read every book on creativity under the sun, but to look at it from a neuroscience perspective, I thought was just absolutely brilliant. But before we get into the content of the book, I wanted to start asking you, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping what you've ended up doing with your life and career? So my mom was stay-at-home mom. She had her first baby when she was 18 years old. And then she had um, four more children in five years. So she was a very busy working mom. Um, my dad uh, first started uh, working in nurseries, meaning um, flower nurseries, landscaping nurseries, and really was um, very self-made, didn't go to college. Um, neither one of my parents went to college. And um, he really uh, wanted um, more out of life. And so he uh, was t- told, somebody told him about this job where he could sell insurance, where he could sell car insurance and life insurance. And he got his first job with Allstate Insurance. And he worked his way up through that job to be sort of an agent and an executive. And, you know, and every time he did better, when we were little, we moved to a different house. So um, I think, uh, interestingly, what I think I learned from my mother was this ability to manage a household, manage the, manage the books, right? And manage all of wow. these moving parts. 
And for my dad was this incredible work ethic. You know, at one point he had three jobs, um, but he was always sort of driven for more um, and um, to do better, to do more. And, but I think it was the workhorse part of him that I really inherited. Yeah. So you were then in a family of five total for children? Five girls. Wow. Okay. So, so many questions come from that. So one thing I've always been curious about when it comes to people in big families is what do you learn about navigating sort of social dynamics and human behavior from being in such a big family? And then when it came to sort of advice in terms of how to make your way in the world, did that advice change from child to child? Because I, I feel like in an immigrant family, like I always joke that the first kid is kind of the experiment because your parents don't have a clue what they're doing and they're in a new country. And then they fix everything they screwed up on the first kid with the second one. Um, so really curious, like, how did that advice change? And then, you know, what did you learn about navigating social dynamics? So my older sister is four years older, um, three and a half years older than me and my twin sister. So, and then I have a sister that's 18 months younger. So, so as a twin, I was really born in relationship. I was conceived in relationship and born in relationship. And so I, I think that that really influenced my view of, of being in a family because I always had someone who, um, was, I was in conversation with that I w- was always able to relate to. Um, my sister's really, my twin sister, her name's Sandra. She's a really very much an extrovert and I'm pretty much an introvert. And so my older sister totally was just like the experiment. You know, um, she, uh, was incredibly, uh, and still is incredibly, um, adventurous and risk taker. And my parents were just like, no, 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 you got to toe the line. There was always this tension of opposites <laughs> there. And of course, a grandmother, yeah. uh, a fraternal grandmother basically took my older sister in and was like, you know, you're the princess, they're the pulpers, right? And, and so there's that dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah. uh, but in, there was always so many people in our home because um, that was the way it was done in the late 50s and early 60s. And so aunts and uncles, my grandparents moved in with us. You know, there was, you know, dinner time was everybody helped prepare, everybody cleared, everybody did dishes. You know, there was never like, um, you know, many hands make light work was the way our family sort of managed um, family. And, um, and, you know, we never knew like who, who was coming to dinner, who was there, who wasn't there. So many activities, so much navigation, a lot of executive function. And I think, um, I learned how to be incredibly productive in chaos, how to like not get swept away and all of, all of that, enjoy it. But then to kind of say, okay, I have to self-regulate, right? I have to pull myself out. If I'm going to accomplish what I need to accomplish on my own passions and my own drive. And I think we all kind of, all of us learned that we all had to work by the time, from the time we were 14, we all had, had jobs. And, um, and, but there was always a lot of like, you know, family dynamic up, upheaval. And, um, and I found myself being the one who was like watching human behavior, figuring out how to resolve conflicts, putting people together to sort of work their stuff out and to understand kind of how to do things. And there's also a lot of joy in our home. We, sang, danced, all of the, everybody in our family were makers, meaning we either made puzzles, we crocheted, we knitted, we put on shows, we, we all did something. Um, my mom wrote poetry. 
Um, and now we have piano, but not because we were great at it. My grandmother was really great at it, knitting and stuff, but more because we just were doers. And I think that doing is something that's also been a real mainstay in my life. Mm -hmm. So how do you go from that to sort of, you know, taking a neuroscientific approach to creativity? Like what puts you on this path of all things? So um, from the time I was very little, I was always seen as the most curious of kids. And I always wanted to understand how people, why they did what they did, what motivated them, like what was happening in their heads when they were making decisions. Like my mother used to say to me, you know, why is not the only question. And, um, and when I was 12, my twin sister had a very serious accident and almost farming accident and almost lost her leg. And she was so traumatized by the accident that she had virtually no ability to put words to, to what she was feeling. And, and that now I know is a, is a, is a physiological reaction to trauma. But at the time it was petrifying. This is a person who was my whole inner world and outer world. And I couldn't get to her inner world. And so um, she started to draw. And it was when she started to draw that I was able to understand in another language, another language of humanity, what was going on with her and what she was feeling, which were feelings we'd never had before, you know, around death and about loss and about, you know, uh, anger and all these things. And that, I think, was the first time that I really started to kind of tap into the arts and and the way we express ourselves. And when I think about art, I just think about I don't think of, you know, all the different like music, dancing, and what I think about is that all art forms are around creative human expression. And and whether you're the maker and you're putting something out to understand it for yourself or for others, or whether you're beholding what someone else is needing to say, um, it's all it's all of that. And um and so I think that really was very formative for me. Um later in my life when I started a uh a company called Curiosity Kits, which were hands-on learning materials for kids in arts, sciences, and world cultures. I was so fascinated by what motivated them and I uh, and what made kids love making as opposed to listening. And and I started to work with Howard Gardner's work and Kurt Fisher at Harvard, who are explaining to me the cognitive science and the psychology of all of that. And then I watched family members, I used to say one loving adult work with a kid and the social dynamics of reward and recognition and witnessing all started to come online, started to see the kids that made things remembered better. And so I just kept going deeper and deeper and deeper into the neuroscience of and the cognitive science psychology of what was happening when we were making art. And it was just a such a natural thing that we did at home and it, you know, felt so good or we felt so much insight or or reflection or, or soothed us in painful situations. And then, um, at around 2002 or three, um, Johns Hopkins, uh, had a donor who was very interested in giving a large sum of money to Hopkins. But one of the stipulations was they wanted someone to study the science of the arts. And, you know, early on, there weren't a lot of people doing that and certainly not at Hopkins. And I said, they'd asked me if I'd be interested in, you know, taking this on. And I said, well, I know a lot about the arts and I know a lot about sort of the way developmentally the arts have been so important in learning. 
And I've always thought the health and well-being and learning um, really is a triad. So I was asked to really start to think more deeply about it. And, and that allowed me to survey the field and see what was really in existence from a neuroaesthetics perspective, sort of the study of how the arts and aesthetics measurably change your brain and body. But I was also interested in the application of it. So studying it is really important. There's not a lot of money in the in the pipeline to study the arts from a uh, yeah. from an NIH or whatever. So um, I just became incredibly kind of a student of understanding it and understanding it from a translational point of view. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. 
We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I want to start somewhat out of order in terms of, of approaching the book because I mean, you're an educator and this is something that I always ask educators. One of the things that you say in the book is that students with access to arts education are five times less likely to drop out of school and four times more likely to be recognized for high achievement. They score higher on the SAT and on proficiency tests of literacy, writing, and English skills. They're also less likely to have disciplinary infractions. And when arts education is equitable so that all kids have equal access, the learning gap between low and high income students begins to shrink. Now, obviously, you know, one of the first things to go when you start to run into educational funding issues is funding for the arts. I mean, as a student of the arts and as somebody who was really fortunate to have this incredible music teacher whose lessons still influence me to this day, I personally think that's tragic. But, you know, as, as an educator, as somebody who was in an academic institution with, you know, sort of what you've just written there in mind, if you were tasked with redesigning the entire education system from the ground up, what would you change about it? Which I realize is a massive question. Well, yeah, it's actually interesting. It's a question that I am being asked right now um, by a number of states and, and even countries who are really looking at um, low um, test scores, higher rates of depression, significantly higher rates of generalized mental illness and serious mental illness, um, uh, you know, low um, residency in classes, businesses saying that they don't have the workers coming out of high school or college that are really ready for the workforce. So I'm hearing um, a lot about what's not working and, and thinking about the solutions. What I think is so amazing is I think we made decisions about taking the arts out of school for all the right reasons that they were the wrong decisions. You know, we thought that we could help our kids, you know, get down to business. We thought that we could, you know, make them smarter. We thought that we could, you know, achieve these goals of greater workforce. But I think what we didn't know and what we forgot was that, um, you know, we are literally wired for the arts. They're how we learn. They're how we grow. They're how we heal. Taking the arts out of schools was exactly the wrong decision. And I think if you move 30 and 40 years forward, you can we really understand more about why. We also see the consequences of what, what's happened. Um, th- we are you know, literally hardwired for the arts. And that doesn't mean for arts appreciation or for arts as a luxury, but we're wired for arts um, from a neurobiological perspective. You're born with a hundred billion neurons. Like they're just, you're, you come into the world and it's the way you bring the world in connects those neurons to each other to create really strong neural pathways. And so think about it this way, you know, sound, music, dance, creative writing, all of those things are highly sensorial and highly salient experiences. And what saliency means is that these are the things that move you emotionally or practically. And so you couldn't possibly take in all the sensorial things that are around you, but it's those things, sort of the noise and signal, right? There's a lot of noise, but the salient experience is the signal. And oftentimes the most salient experiences are the ones that are highly tactile, that are highly um, visual, that are, you know, 
really amazing beats and sounds that resonate inside of you. And we know that by bringing those, that kind of information into our bodies, we create these strong neural pathways. These neural pathways basically connect everything you do. So um, it's how you move, it's how you think, it's the way you process emotion, it's the way you learn, the way you retain information and also recall information and create informational changes in new and interesting ways. Um, it's the way you move the flow. It's everything you do. And so we've really forgotten that the arts are the vehicles for that. So if I were going to um, design a school, what I would say is that arts integration needs to be in every classroom and that we need to have sensorial literacy where we understand how our bodies and brains work and how that those aesthetic and arts experiences actually really help us bring on our default mode network, self-regulate, help us build executive function. So we start to teach our children and parents what those mechanisms are and how they work, um, which means very active environments where there's, I think studios in the schools are really a really interesting way to think about that, where every educator isn't just learning content, but learning how to have kids understand content through these highly multi-sensory sensory experiences. Also from a, from a mental health point of view, I think it's going to be really important to have uh, children creating art for identity, for character, for collaboration, and for building community, for building these very strong communities. Um, just two more points. One is that um, Maria Rosario Jackson, who is the head of the National Endowments for the Arts, um, talks about something called culture kitchens. And in communities, and these and communities happen everywhere, right? Community, you have a community at home, you have a community in your, in your classroom, you have a community in your neighborhood, you have a community at work. But in in many communities that have been highly marginalized, and these are often underrepresented communities. Uh, sometimes these communities have um, had their culture eradicated. Um, they're so far away from where they come from and what they have known that they have to rebuild c- community and culture. And so um, Ivy Ross, my co-author, and I say, art creates culture, culture creates community, and community creates humanity. And I think that's a really important um, paradigm. And so we need to build strong communities where we have these rituals and traditions and ways that we come together to solve problems. And then the other last other thing I was going to say is that when you work with young children using these highly aesthetic arts experiences, you build these neural pathways and those neural pathways provide the capacity for addressing some of the twists and turns that we all are going to experience downstream. So if you are better prepared because you have creative problem solving, you know how to self-regulate, you know how to use executive function, you know how to collaborate, you're going to have resilience. You're going to be able to move through things. And I think that's absolutely essential. And then because neuroplasticity, the great giveaway here is that we continue to learn throughout our lifespan. So I'm really a huge proponent of being curious makers and beholders across our lifespan because it keeps us healthy and well. And and that's really what we want as we live throughout our lives. Yeah. 
Well, one thing that you say at the beginning is the arts, as you'll read throughout this book, trigger the release of neurochemicals, uh, hormones, and endorphins that offers you an emotional release when you experience virtual reality, read poetry or fiction, see a film, or listen to a piece of music, or move your body to dance, to name a few of many of the arts for biological change. So, you know, like with everything you're saying, the thought that was occurring to me as, as you're kind of describing all of the sort of benefits of art is, you know, in the sort of you know, social media driven world where everybody has this sort of mindset of, okay, this isn't worth doing unless a million people find out about it or, you know, it leads to fame, wealth, or, you know, it's not worth starting a blog unless it leads to a book deal. Um, how do you, how do you resolve that? Cause like, I feel like, because I even wrote a book about this exact topic called Potty and One about the benefits of creativity for its own sake. And, you know, to this day, I remember, you know, my, my sister calling in the middle of the book launch. This is like a weekend. She's like, how's it going? I was like, yeah, I haven't sold as many copies as I, I helped it with. She was like, you're an idiot. She was like, that means you don't believe what you wrote. Um, you know, she's like, that's the entire point of the book. But it, like, I realized like what a tough pill that is for people to swallow because they're like, okay, well, if, you know, I'm not going to get an audience for this thing, it isn't worth doing. So talk to me about it from that perspective first. And then I want to go into the actual sort of, you know, uh, executive function changes and, and sort of brain changes that come about from engagement with the arts. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really great point. Um, we are so conditioned to believe that only things that we make that are a good, um, or talented or that other people see and acknowledge are valuable. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. And that indoctrination of that kind of mindset has taken so much of our agency and our capacity for our own growth off the table. And I think it's um, it's really kind of one of those um, truths in humanity that is just getting um, more and more amplified as social media really becomes the commerce. And and that's something that is really, I think it's, it's incredibly sad and, and really dangerous. Um, the count to counter to that is that we actually do know that by using these arts forms and these forms of creative expression, they're really, really incredibly helpful for understanding how you feel, like being embodied, understanding your physiology and what that's saying to you. And then how that gets translated into either thoughts or actions. And so by, by knowing yourself and knowing how you feel and developing that strength of character and identity, you're going to be more able to move in the world to, to share the things that you think are important to share. Not because you want to get feedback, you know, necessarily, but because it's your, it's your, I think your, um, your birthright to be able to to have a voice that adds to the communal conversation, um, and and whether it's liked or not, isn't really the point. It's that you have a you have something that you want to say. Like you had something to say with your book, and and breaking through to have people hear your voice, I think, gets harder when there's so much noise. But it's critically important for us to know who we are, and I think part of the mental health issues are around this idea that we are so externally focused that we're not able to really calm ourselves um, have that sense of well-being know how we feel about something we're just sort of told what we should like and we move and we just sort of chase that and, the, and that takes us to feeling very isolated very lonely and also very lost yeah 
Well, let's talk about this from a, a sort of cognitive function standpoint, because one of the things you say about learning is that creating something is at the core of learning, generating new synaptic connections in the brain is quite literally how we create knowledge. The brain doesn't care about filling bubbles in on standardized tests or heated debates about circular uh, curricular assessments. Our brain is structured to build new connections and to constantly evolve. And how we learn is not the same as a societal education system too often built around memorization of rote data and recall. So talk to me about how just engaging in the arts amplifies your ability to learn and improves cognitive functions. So there's some really interesting um, neurophysiology work that I think um, kind of illustrates that nicely. Uh, One is that um, playing music and for young children in particular, um, there's been some studies that have been done. You can literally see a child's cerebral cortex get larger. So the very brain structure um, has increased sometimes as much as 6%. Um, we also can see in the same kinds of studies, and these are performing arts. So think about it as performing arts. Um, you also can see that there's more synaptic connection, more activity. Um, and what that allows for is more neural, path- neural pathways to grow and, for- and neural pathways to get stronger. We're also seeing that myelination happens in these um, art experiences in the brain. And myelination is the covering, the coating around these neural pathways. So think of it like a sheath that goes over top of the um, neural pathway. And if you've got a sheath that's over this neural pathway, the information is going to go faster and it's going to be more protected because it doesn't have, you know, can't sort of break down as easily. So you're actually protect, creating a protective um, uh, sort of coding on these, on these nerves. We're also seeing that with, um, places like enriched environments where you're creating these very aesthetic spaces where we're actually seeing growth in the cerebral cortex. And, and, and on the other side of it, when these, these, these are things like novelty, surprise, those kinds of experiences. On the other side of it, we also see that when you don't have those kinds of aesthetic experiences, brain mass can get smaller. So I think there's some really, um, you know, profound, you can play that out in lots of ways um, to see that you can have some yeah. very positive and very negative effects by not having these kinds of enriched environments. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. Well, I know you talked about the fact that nature is like one of the most enriched environments of all. And yeah, it's funny because I was I was just surfing this morning and surfing has always been this thing that has just been core to my life, even though I've been out of the water the past few years. And like after reading your book, I'd suddenly made sense to why you know, the water was such a powerful source of all my creative ideas. Oh, yeah, I know. I love, you know, I it's so funny in writing the book. Um, I have so thought about water so much more. Um, you know, like we're, we're 60% water, right? And so think about that. Just the, 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 we have 4 million nerve endings in our skin. Um, just 3000 nerve endings on the tip of one finger. So when you think about the way, um, materiality, water, air, um, sort of, you know, impact your body, um, it's sort of extraordinary, the, the subtle and at the same time, incredible resonance and vibration of something like water and temperature. And so, um, you know, there's two things I think that are happening. Um, when, you know, like you're in the shower and all of a sudden you get a great idea. One of those things is that you're daydreaming and mind wandering, right? You're allowing your body to not be in constant sensorial overload. And that's part of the default mode network. And so, you, you know, we have two systems, one sort of a central network where you're bringing in all this information and the other is the default mode network. And that's where in between the times that you're bringing all this information that you're able to sort of process it. So it's where you daydream, mind wander, think about what you think is beautiful or not beautiful, what you like and not like. And that's the space where I think you start to kind of like come up with these ideas that um, you've, you've literally um, taken a 
taken a break in terms of processing all of that information. Also, I think the resonance of words and people's vibrations really make a difference. You know, if we're, if we're 60% water, um, and I'm resonating a very negative sort of, uh, vibe, you're going to pick that up, right? So things have vibration. Everything has a vibration, um, because of this whole idea around fluid and water. And so being more mindful for me of, you know, what am I resonating and what's resonating back to me? And how do those things create greater sometimes synchronicity, which is such a, an amazing connection? You know, when we dance, we synchronize, right? And so I think there's just a lot of really wonderful things around these biological truths that when you hone into them, you can amplify them. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you a question that I asked a previous podcast guest who was a neuroscientist. And I remember asking her this. I said, you know, I always wish that I could do a brain scan of what my brain was like before I started the unmistakable creative and what it would look like, like what has happened, you know, to the pathways of my brain after a thousand interviews and a thousand books. And her answer was actually very flattering, but also it was kind of interesting. She said, well, yours is the kind of brain we're going to want to have access to when we can upload our consciousness to the internet, which I found funny, but I'm curious, like, you know, like from your research, what would, you know, what would that show about what has happened to sort of the neural networks in my brain? Well, you know, I think one of the things that is so fascinating about, um, you know, you're in a, you and I are in an improv right now, right? I would argue that you're an improver, right? You, you're, you don't know what you're going to get out. You don't know what you're going to say. Yeah, no, I what, never no, plan any questions in advance. I know how I start and I know I'm going to end, but I never plan any questions in advance. So that's an art. That's an art, right? That's an art form in and of itself. And so I would arguably say that um, your prefrontal cortex um, is very happy because it's sort of in that flow state where you're kind of moving in and out. Whoops. And um, and I think that that you're not critiquing yourself. You're you're really just kind of in the flow. And I think there's probably incredible joy. So I would think that your dopamine and serotonin neurotransmitters are quite happy with you. I also think you're, you've, you're creating a reservoir of knowledge to pull on, right? To be able to retrieve mm-hmm. and to be able to use in different ways. Um, and I think that's also will really serve you well. And, you know, this idea of use it or lose it, you're using it all the time. So you're building really strong neural pathways and probably also um, purging and pruning the ones that are no longer useful for you. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's also yeah. super, super important. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, this, you're, you also strike me as someone who is very interested in playful exploration. You're very interested in, you're a very curious person. All of those things are very helpful in keeping your mind strong. So you start to think about things like Alzheimer's and dementia. There's certainly a genetic com- connection to those things, but not. But there's also lifestyle connections. So I think you're keeping yourself healthy longer. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because you mentioned having access to all this knowledge, and now with sort of AI, like you know, being able to upload all the transcripts into an AI and be able to sift through them and get answers to damn near anything, it, it's pretty mind-boggling. Like what I've been able to do, I'm just like, oh my god! Like 
and I realized one of the huge advantages that I have in using even AI tools like ChatGPT is that I have a massive existing base of knowledge to apply to it. So like, I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, I wanted to revise a blog post and I thought, you know what? I'm like, I read Jonah Berger's book, Contagious, which is all about making blog posts go, content go viral. And I literally told it, I was like, take the principles for Jonah Berger's book about, you know, Contagious and revise my blog post based on those principles. And what I realized was the only way I would have even thought to do that was if I had interviewed Jonah Berger and I had read his book. That's true, right? That's totally true. I mean, but you wouldn't have known. I mean, well, I I guess turning that around, you know, the AI experience, I think is, um, I think it's only as good as what you're, curiosity is putting in there too, right? Like you're just, mm-hmm. you're deciding what you want to know, how deep you want to know it, how you want it to come back to you. Those are creative choices, right? And so yeah. I think there, there's something too to really think about, like, you're not asking AI to tell you what you think. You're asking I, exactly. you know, and, and so I think it's how you're using it makes it a creative act. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think that that's, you know, I, I just self-published a book called The Artificially Intelligent Creative. And, and that was like one of the core ideas was that you don't want to use it to, you know, replace yourself, but to leverage it to complement your abilities. Um, and I think that that's when you really can see a lot of the power of it. Because I think, you know, with the just sheer large volume of content we've created over the past 13 years, I thought this is like a moment we've been waiting for uh, forever because it just gives us the power to do things at a speed uh, that we never could before and at a scale we never could before. And that's, that to me, um, is in service of humanity. And that's the difference, right? Speed and scale, yeah. you know, and I think, but still having your own sort of creative, um, uh, input and to, to really drive that. Somebody actually did something recently that I thought was interesting. They, they read the book, they loved the book and they told AI how much they loved the book and said, can you make a picture to show how much I love this book? And what came out was this um, very beautiful brain, colored brain. And he posted it. And um, people were like, yeah, I don't feel it. I don't feel the love. I don't feel the humanity in this. I feel like it's a flat, a flat version of your feelings. And I thought that was really interesting. I mean, I don't, there's no like, I don't have an end line about it other than, um, yeah. Is, is somebody did ask me in an interview recently, will we be able to tell the difference between something that a person has made and something that AI has made? And, um, you know, I, you know, like a piece of pottery versus, um, you know, that's made out of a 3D machine where it said, make this look like, you know, a four year old made it as opposed to something that a four year old made. And I, I don't know the answer. I, I want to believe, <laughs> I want to believe that the human touch, the human experience mm-hmm. is always, you're always going to feel that kind of like we were talking about water, the resonance of something. You're always going to feel it. Yeah. Um, but it, these are, we're, I think we're at a very big crossroad. Yeah. I mean, there are times when I, well, I'll, I'll have a revision done and I will tell it, it was like, no, don't take that part up, put it back in because it's like the part of, you know, that I was like, wait a minute, that's like my personal story. Don't remove that. Uh, 
yeah, the parts that make it human. It's it's really interesting because I, I think there's also like sort of a bias against it for some people. And it's kind of like some people are just, you know, anti-technology. Whereas, you know, like I said, for me, this was kind of like the ability to just take learning to another level um, that I'd never been able to before. Uh, let's talk about the um, physical health benefits because I know you write a lot about that. I mean, I remember you specifically saying that the arts literally help you live longer. Like they increase longevity because um, I know you talked about sort of the mental health benefits. But what about the physical health benefits? Yeah, you know the the way the book is organized, um, we wanted to sort of touch on um, so many of the ways that the arts can influence our day to day lives in all the twists and turns, whether that was mental health or physical health, learning, flourishing. Uh, you know, even thinking about sort of uh, community and what community really looks like. And, you know, so in the, in the healing of the body chapter, talking about physical health, we talked about sort of those basic sort of chronic things that we all have, like headaches. Um, and we're able to, um, talk with a number of people who were using some, what I thought, uh, were counterintuitive ways to use the arts for those, those types of things, like, um, dancing for headache. We learned that it turns out that actually increasing um, oxygen flow to the vascular system in headaches will help to reduce headache pain. That's been counter, that's counterintuitive to anything most people would ever have thought. Um, also, um, virtual reality for chronic pain um, is being used. Um, we sh- we spotlighted in something called Snow World, um, where uh, burn victims are using this virtual reality program that's snow and looks cold and there's snowmen and, um, you know, penguins. And that the belief system is that, um, by distracting someone to another space that provides a whole different frame of reference, you can actually divert them to be feeling the pain that's happening and the anxiety that's happening and changing something like a pain bandage. And we also saw is that when those things happen, um, the need for opioids decreases dramatically and there's a whole cascade of things there. Uh, we also saw um, uh, some really beautiful, interesting work uh, by a woman named Li Wei Sai at MIT who's using light and sound, 40 hertz of light and sound to actually alter the progression of dementia. And that's really fascinating work. And that's not looking at um, you know symptom relief or quality of life. That's going right at trying to cure dementia. And so, you know, we saw some some interesting things in that space. Also looking at end-of-life care and palliative care and looking at those kinds of experiences where different arts for the for the person who's having the um for the patient or for the person at the end of their life, but also for their caregivers and for their families and using art for different purposes, sometimes for pain relief, but sometimes for legacy, sometimes for emotional support, and also for quality of life. Um, Parkinson's patients and dancing, we lifted that up uh, to show that gait, cognition, sleep, and mood all are enhanced with dancing. And during COVID, um, Mark Morris has a group called uh, Dance for PD, and they took their program to Zoom so instead of thousands of people dancing around the country, millions of people were dancing around the world and they were able to get a much better understanding of how many times somebody dances a week um, and what those changes were. So, you know, in medical terminology, that's 
called dose and dosage. So starting to get a handle, a greater handle on um, like a drug, what are the dose and dosages that you need in these different art forms to help you stay at a steady state or maybe even to improve cognition or gait or sleep um, over time? Well, one of the things you talk about also is storytelling. You say stories born in the imagination of the teller are capable of transporting the listener to another place in time. They provide critical information and meaning. We literally feel a story as our brains release a cascade of chemicals that encode them in our hippocampus. We now understand that stronger the emotional content, the stronger the memory is of a story. The ability to completely fabricate stories out of the human mind in order to convey important feelings, ideas, emotions, and shared knowledge is but one of the capacities we developed in order to make sense of the world in a shared and aesthetic way. And I, I think that the reason that that struck me and, and you know, it is because of the fact that like I have always saw what I do here as you know being a storyteller. I mean, that's part of the reason I don't start by asking questions about your book. Yeah, you know, I am totally fascinated with storytelling. And, you know, we tell stories all the time. We tell them to ourselves. We tell them to our children. We tell them to our, you know, colleagues. Um, I had the opportunity to, to talk with E.O. Wilson, um, the evolutionary biologist at Harvard, right before he passed away. And he really believes that this capacity for humanity to have um, harnessed fire and to bring that into a circle where we had the opportunity to begin to be able to share our stories, our individual stories, but then ultimately our collective stories, and to do that in a very salient way, right? So dancing, you know, props, stories that were, you know, had beginnings and middles and end and mystery and intrigue and trauma, but those mythologies and those stories that we tell ourselves and each other really become our rituals, they become our values, they become our moral code, they become how we connect to each other. And 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 we remember them because they're so deeply embedded in our hip, hip, in our hippocampus. And they're all actually intergenerational, right? I mean, th- these are the things that come back over and over again. So when I was saying to you earlier, where culture has had their stories, their community eradicated, how do you rebuild those stories and how do you bring them back? And in Baltimore, I'll give you an interesting example. Um, we had an area called the Black Arts District, and it was legendary of uh, Red Skelton, who was a comedian, had a comic comedy club there. Billy Holiday had a club there. Any black performer who was on the East Coast coming through town, coming down the down the eastern seaboard, had to stop in Baltimore because it was the place. Now, this was like in the in the 30s and 40s. So, you know, um, that all changed. Um, certainly in the 60s when there were all the riots, this part of Baltimore was really just burned, burned to the ground. People that came after that didn't know that any of this existed. And so there were no stories. There were no memories. There were no visual cues about what had happened there. And so the community decided that they would start to create banners. So on different street corners, they would say, Billy Holiday lived here. This was where Red Skelton's club was. This was where the drumming, the drummers, Gene, Gene Krupa and others came and played music here. And, um, they had this whole, um, Nat King Cole played here and they, and they'd have 
lo- local people perform Billy Holiday, do Red Skelton jokes, like have a neighborhood kind of um, uh, fireside chat where they do conversations about what happened here. The community is slowly but absolutely coming back into an arts district because it's remembering what was there and it's honoring what was there. So the stories are starting to emerge and now more stories are coming and people are saying, I remember this, my grandmother told me this. And it's, it's alivening to be able to bring that back. Um, I think, you know, dance is, dance is storytelling too. Um, songs are almost always storytelling. So you start to think about the story shows up in so many parts of our lives. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing that really stood out to me, and I remember sending this quote to my cousin because, you know, like for Indians, I joke that our primary recreational activity is eating. Huh. Um, like you said, the studies show that breaking bread literally has an effect on our emotions and behavior. Eating is both a practical need and a cultural one. The aesthetics of food, the beauty of presentation, how it registers on our senses is an aesthetic experience is being studied. At the insular cortex, the primary area for our sense of taste also contributes to our visceral and emotional experiences. When we eat food together, it tastes more flavorful. And, you know, if you grow up in an Indian family, like to me, I was like, yeah, of course, because literally all we do when we get together is eat. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. I am, um, uh, it, it, some of the, that particular piece uh, in the book, I, I have, have had so many people say to me, I love that you included that. And, you know, I wish we could have included more about food because Food is a great connector. I mean, we all know it, um, but the physiological aspects of food, sort of what's happening neurobiologically when we come together and we eat together, I think it's more than hunger, right? It's more than physical hunger. It's this need to be together, to, um, you know, to, to share, literally break bread. And I think the neurobiology of it um, really bears that out. I had the opportunity to talk to... Um, the folks that run the world, the world, uh, world kitchen, um, who goes to all these different disaster areas with food. And what they see is two things. One is people need food because they're in, um, could be a war, could be a natural disaster. Uh, they definitely need food for, for, for substance. They need it to survive. But what they've also found is that it's the connections. It's the connective tissue, um, with each other that has, is, really fortifying them. And also the volunteers that are bringing the food feel more um, uh, part of really satisfying what's happening in the community. And I think, uh, you know, seeing that the power of food, you know, we don't really, we don't, less and less do we come together to celebrate um, or to mourn with food or to to, to bring our each of our own dishes together to say, here's what's my culture. Here's, you know, this whole idea of a potluck. Neighborhoods used to do that all the time. And these kinds of simple but powerful ways to connect to each other, I think we've left on the sidelines. And th- this idea of food, I think, just lifts that, lifts that up. Um, we have lab meetings um, in the summer and I always have our lab, everybody brings a dish and it's so extraordinary to see this play out, just to see the physiology play out where everybody tells a story about who made it, where the recipe came from. Can't buy anything from a store. You have to make something. It's even funny to see who doesn't cook, right? So I think this, just mm-hmm. this idea of food as more than physical subs, 
you know, substance is really um, powerful. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I want to finish with that one sort of idea that I've been thinking a lot about based on your book, and, it, and that is the sort of the benefits um, when it comes to whether we create or whether we consume. Like, obviously, I'm a big proponent of creating more than you consume, given what I do. But do you reap the same benefits that you're talking about just from you know engaging the arts as a consumer, or you know are they different when you're somebody who's a creator? Yeah. So, so um, I think that there are. Uh, differences between being a maker and a beholder. And there are also some um, similarities. So um, let me start by talking about as as the beholder. I think that there's three major things that you get as a beholder. Um, one is empathy. You have the ability to be able to understand the other. Um, a second is perspective taking. You can take in um, a new way of seeing the world. And three is safe risk taking. Um, and by that, I mean, you can try something on and you can experiment with it without the risk of doing it yourself. Um, and, and that can often happen when you're reading fiction um, or you're in a play and you're seeing something happen and you're like, well, what if I did that? What would that feel like? Well, oh, this is a potential outcome that could happen, but you're not, but your risks are lower. As a maker, you're able to have um, agency over exactly what you make. Nobody can tell you what medium to work in, what topic area to work on, how long it's going to take, what process you're going to need to use. You have total agency over creating. It also, I think, gives you an opportunity to be able to make something that is not has not yet been ready for um language and any kind of language. So it's, it's, it's sort of pre-knowing. Um, I'm a collager, for example. And a lot of times I'm having a very strong emotion, but I don't know what my emotion is. And I don't even know really what it's about, but you know, something's happening inside of me. I have a box of home scraps and I, I'll start to put something together. And when I make something, I can then look at it and go, Oh, that's what it is because symbol and metaphor come out. That's also true of poetry, right? Poetry is really a metaphoric language. And so it's not to be, it's not usually literal, um, but you're able to sort of find the, the metaphor and symbol in that. So as a maker, um, you're able to, to first of all, create anything you want in any way you want. Um, you're also able to then transfer those making skills and it could be music. It can be whatever the, the arts form is into other domains of your life. And we know that the arts skills, processes, no matter the art form, transfer to other areas of your life. And transfer is kind of a holy grail of learning. You know, you can learn something like, you know, in one domain that never is going to transfer to another domain. But when you can actually transfer these skills, um, creative problem solving, uh, self-regulation, collaboration, uh, all of those things into, say, community building or into, um, other kinds of uh, uh, mental health issues. That's amazing. And so I think those are just two simple ways that making and beholding are different. And we do both all the time. Even if you're not aware of it, you're making dinner, right? You know, you're, you're figuring out what you're going to wear to go to work. That's a, that's an expression. That's a, that's a creative self-expression. You're probably listening to the radio. You might be singing and listening to the radio, right? I mean, we're always making and we're always beholding. I think 
thing that I'm advocating for is how do you lift that up so you're more intentional and conscious of it so you can really bring it in in a more um, salient and I think satisfying way. Wow. Um, well, this has been amazing. Uh, yeah, you're just basically a, a gold mine of all sorts of really interesting insights about creativity in the brain. Um, so I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Being your pure essence. Beautiful. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Uh, where can people find out more about you, the book, uh, your work, and everything that you're up to? So you can go to yourbrainonart.com, and there's lots of great information about the book, but also about neuroaesthetics. Um, neuroartsblueprint.org also will give you lots of information about what people are doing all over the world to really build this field. And then my lab is artsandmindlab at jhu.edu. And, um, and you can write me um, in any of those places, and I'm happy to share more. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. 
Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.